Hey folks, wanted to jump on right quick and let you know that there are all kinds of audio issues with the recording today, and they're all on my end. Apparently my recording device defaulted to an open mic instead of my regular mic, and there's just all kinds of hiss and background noise. James could not do anything. It is not his fault. He did the best that he could to make it a pleasant listening experience, but I'm afraid it's not one of my better efforts, and I pledge to do better the next time around. You're listening to Uncommentary, the home of conversations and clarity. I'm your host, Marty Duran. I want to talk to you for a minute about my buddy Sam Morris and his leather work. He made me a cool leather journal cover. I use a Loistrom uh, 1917 journal for most of my journaling and my time management, productivity issues, all that kind of stuff. And uh, carries my pencils and a field notes little pad. Uh, and he did a fantastic job. He got his start making uh, pastoral or teaching note cover, uh, notebooks. So they're made out of leather. Uh, pastors use them for their preaching notes. Professors use them for their teaching notes. Uh, and these things are high quality and they look fantastic. Now, here's the deal. You can only get him on Twitter. It's at Sam Morris 8, at S-A-M-O-R-R-I-S, numeral 8, at Sam Morris 8 on Twitter. Hit him up. He'll get in contact with you there and give you a quote, uh, and you will not be disappointed in your leather work from Sam. If you read back through the uh, documents of the Founding Fathers and the things that they were concerned about as they were putting together uh the United States of America, I should clarify for any uh, non-American listeners, I'm talking about the American founding fathers. Um, They had great reservations about people's ability to govern themselves, uh, even Americans. And in fact, by the end of most of their lives, uh, some of them had given up hope that Americans would ever be able to govern themselves. Uh, Americans, in their minds, lacked virtue. And by that, obviously, they're not talking about what we would equate in some kind of biblical morality or something like that. Uh, We know from history, the founding fathers uh, weren't uh, exempt from all manner of sin. Uh, However, what they meant by virtue in many instances was uh, denying one's self for the good of one's community or one's country. And they really did feel like that the 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 organization, the structure of the United States government as a republic with all the involved checks and balances uh, would help people who couldn't govern themselves well to govern themselves well. Uh, But by the, it didn't take me, it didn't take long, several presidential elections and we were into American history deeply and uh, things changed. Uh, There was no longer a suspicion of behavior from people Uh, There was no longer a concern that people couldn't govern themselves. Uh, The concern shifted in that politicians and people who represented the population would not be able to govern. And in fact, if you really wanted government to work well, you had to give it back to the people. So uh, my guest today has written about this. This is a fascinating study. The book is called We the Fallen People. And uh, this is a really good conversation. I hope that you'll enjoy it. My guest today is Professor Tracy McKenzie, staff of Wheaton College. You know, the first time I was like over 50 years old and somebody and I was type, I typed something about Wheaton University and somebody said, no, it's not Wheaton University, it's Wheaton College. I went, you've got to be kidding me. I've heard Wheaton University my entire life, not just my adult life. So congratulations on making it to Wheaton College. <laughs> 
But you came there from uh, the University of Washington, where you were for a number of years in the Donald Logan Endowed Chair of American History. Um, a lot of your writing thus far has had to do with a particular aspect of the Civil War. What is that? What particular aspect? So uh, there's been so much done about the Civil War. Uh, it's hard to find an original contribution, but my focus uh, was really on the way that the social structure and the economy of, uh, of the South was affected by the war. Okay. South was uh, poor for century after the war and trying to figure out why that was is part of what I was interested in. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, three adult kids, any grandkids yet? No, and that's a sore spot, but maybe that'll change. <laughs> I've uh, I've only got two. A dude I work with has like thirteen, and I've I've accused him of cornering the market and uh, hogging all the grandkids that the rest of us need. Um, favorite movie is Chariots of Fire. So bad news for you in the last day or two. Did you see? So I don't know why. What's happened in the last day or two? Uh, Vangelis died. Oh, yeah. okay. No, I hadn't heard that. I think actually he died last week, and it just got publicized. Father of the Bride is one of the funniest movies that's ever been made. It is so hysterical. Uh, we still make jokes going through the uh, grocery store about the hot dogs and the buns not measuring up and not equal. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so, uh, Professor Tracy McKenzie, welcome to Uncommentary. It is my pleasure, Marty. I've been looking forward to talking with you. So that's all the um, most of the professional and just a little bit of the uh, the personal. What What's a thing that you do or enjoy or you think, you know, if, all these people that are listening would probably be interested to know this about me. What's that thing? <laughs> I'm not sure that thing exists. <laughs> I live a pretty boring life. Uh, we've just started summer uh, break here, and my fantasy is to sit under a tree and read as much as I possibly can. Oh, so yeah. uh, they'll never make a movie about my life, I can assure you. Well, you know, I would be move. I would be willing to be movieless if I could uh, enjoy that. I like your book sh- bookshelf behind you, by the way. Um, so you have written, uh, a book called we, the fallen people, which should, I mean, this book really should be every Calvinist dream. Um, every one of them should buy this and read it and preach it next week. Um, but you really take the position in the book that, um, the founders of, uh, the United States recognized that we, that humanity had issues and they were hoping that the government that they made would help address some of those issues they basically recognized that humanity was messed up. But it didn't take long for uh, we Americans to change our tune and decide that we were great after all, <laughs> that that uh, we weren't going to hold that line. So this is going to be a great conversation. So what got, first of all, what got you interested in this particular subject matter? So I've been teaching um, college now for 34 years, and this is a you know a topic I've been teaching on forever. Uh, and... Um, uh, I think in particular, the theme of uh, what we assume about human nature and the way that we uh, engage in politics uh, is something that um, is an enormously important uh, part of the story of uh, our country. And it's something that I think we largely uh, ignore. So basically, uh, themes that I've been stressing to students for a very long time were rolled into themes that became this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been thinking about it, writing it for a long time, but I'll be very honest, um, what prompted me to write it when I did uh, was just uh, the things I saw unfolding uh, in our contemporary uh, culture. Uh, I, t- I tell folks that I, I wrote uh, the book really out of a sense of burden in, mm. in two respects, a lot of concern for contemporary American democracy, uh, and then even more so 
a lot of concern for the the testimony for the witness mm-hmm. of the um, American Christian uh, to our culture. So, um, so take us back to the founders, and um, you mentioned you've got a section in there about uh, dealing with or was America founded as a Christian nation, uh, which is a great topic. And your argument is almost that it's a waste of time to try to talk about it and try to figure it out. Why do you take that approach? Yeah, not every, you know, not everyone would agree with me. Not every Christian historian would agree with me. But um, most of the prominent founders that we tend to look at, they just didn't talk a lot Mm -hmm. or write a lot explicitly uh, about their private religious faith. Uh, and we always uh, seems we find ourselves trying to scrape up some sort of argument from a pretty thin uh, foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, they they spoke and wrote uh, endlessly uh, about human nature mm. uh, because I, I think it was an obvious reason. I think they believed that no framework of government could succeed if it didn't take human nature into account and make allowances for yeah. it. So whereas we don't have a lot of evidence about the the founders understanding of their personal faith, we have just reams of evidence about what they thought about human nature. They weren't uh, hesitant at all. Uh, And they said things about human nature that uh, no politician who wanted to be elected today probably would ever stand (laughs) up in in public and say. Uh, They didn't didn't hide the fact at all that they thought that uh, our default motive is Mm -hmm. self-interest. And that when self-interest clashed with the the good of the society, uh, our own self-interest went out. Mm. So um, give an example of, uh, you have an example of how um, Franklin uh, said some kind of prayer or something, or, or commit, you know, uh, requested prayer or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it is. Um, and how it was like, the reaction to it was like, nah. And then others were like, yeah. And it kind of set a, uh, a groundwork for a conflict even at the beginning of how America was going to be understood um, and then quickly it just shifted uh, to a more positive outlook. Yeah. Yeah. I tell that story early in the book. Uh, it's probably one that your listeners have heard, uh, perhaps, uh, where uh, Benjamin Franklin in the middle of the Constitutional Convention rises and uh, delivers a, a very solemn kind of um, a word to the delegates. He says, you know, I think we've forgotten God. We need to be beginning each day with prayer. Uh, and seek uh, seek God's blessing on what we're doing. Uh, and um, the, the whole story, uh, which really did not come to light until uh, decades later, uh, when pretty much everyone involved was, was passed away. But Franklin, in his own handwriting, uh, writes at the bottom of the text of his speech that only three or four of the 55 delegates actually supported his recommendation. Uh, so the... the <laughs> the, the reality was it really it was a non-starter. It uh, his uh, uh, proposal fell fell flat. Uh, but uh, the rest of the story is that uh, as that began to leak out, a, a counter story, really pretty much manufactured from whole cloth, began to circulate. That oh yes, there was uh, almost unanimous support that the delegates adjourned and fasted and prayed for days. Wow! And then everything uh, turned around, uh, and. Um, there's just no support for that at all. In fact, it's clearly uh, fabricated, uh, but it's it's a revealing mm-hmm. uh, anecdote because it just tells us how desperately we want to uh, think of our founding as um, as uniquely Christian. Uh, and um, if, if that is 
were true, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but when the evidence is not there, we, we, we need to ask ourselves, why do we feel constrained to, in, to invent it? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, uh, that, that's short, sort of where I started with the book. So I really argued that we really need to ask different questions. Yeah. We, we want to prove that the founders were Christian, I think, because it gives us ammunition in, in debates with the, with the culture. Yeah. Uh, we say, well, our country was founded as a Christian nation. That means uh, that uh, we should uh, follow their example uh, today, um, which is why when when folks in church come up to me and say, you know, tell me what you think about the, the founders' uh, understanding of Christianity or their personal faith, I want to say, you know, why do you want to know? Right. Why is it important <laughs> to you? And, and it's rarely because I have this disinterested uh, thirst for the truth. It's more because uh, I have a kind of political agenda mm. uh, in mind. You um, you mentioned uh, a conversation about the meaning of virtue and how that was understood. And I think that's really important because there is this idea that the 1700s were a more virtuous time. People were more, I don't know, that, I think most people actually think people were more righteous. They don't even mean they're more well-behaved. I think a lot of Christians think people were more righteous back in those days. Yeah, But uh, that's not even technically what the virtue conversation was about. So explain how that's used differently, uh, even during that day. So, yeah, that's a great question. Vir- virtue, you know, can mean a lot of different things uh, to us today, but, but more often than not, I think we associate virtue with some sort of private um, sanctity. Mm-hmm. We associate virtue with sexual chastity and so forth. But when uh, Americans talked about virtue in the late uh, 1700s, particularly in the context of a political discussion, they, they meant a, a public kind of quality where uh, someone uh, sort of consciously denied their self-interest to promote the good of the whole. Mm-hmm. So a, a short uh, definition would be self-denial for the public good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they certainly emphasized it. Uh, and so you'll read any number of times in their writings and speeches uh, that they're exhorting Americans to be a virtuous people, that they believe that virtue is really important to the flourishing of the society. But as I say in the book, one of the reasons they say that so much is because they're trying to persuade uh, their audiences. Yeah. Uh, and almost always, if you read uh, contextually, when they're talking about the importance of virtue, they're also bemoaning the lack mm-hmm. of it. They're, they're arguing that Americans aren't virtuous. And they're even making the argument, George Washington makes this explicitly in the lead up uh, run up to the 1787 uh, Constitutional Convention, he says we've uh, we've thought too highly of human nature, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I, I actually think the Constitutional Convention. I'm not the only one who argues this. Comes out of the sense of a crisis of virtue. They felt compelled to sort of start over again because uh, Americans weren't uh, exhibiting that kind of self denial for the public good. And so they tried to craft the Constitution with that in mind. I want to read a uh, quote from the book that's, uh, I think it's in this section, or at least it's around, maybe it's right before. Uh, This is from page 35, and you quote um, a particular uh, radio and podcast host that I won't name, uh, who exhorts us to become the America that we were at first. And then you say, this would have bewildered the founders. By the mid-1780s, they feared the country was on the verge of, quote, national humiliation. As one hero of the revolution put it, they were convinced that the root of the catastrophe was moral. And then you reference, uh, I think this is Washington at the end. Uh, yeah, he says, without decisive action, the country would, quote, sink into the lowest state of humiliation and contempt and become a byword in all the earth. End of quote. I mean, that sounds like preaching. <laughs> does sound like preaching, doesn't it? 
Uh, and so the quote uh, from that nameless person, that, that quote that you mentioned, I think, um, is an example of what you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier, that, that sometimes we maybe uh, imagine the the founding period as more of a righteous period mm-hmm. than perhaps contemporaries at the time would have described yeah. it, would have described it as. So there's certainly by the time uh, of the Constitutional Convention, the dominant uh, theme is not we're a virtuous people. Mm-hmm. It's actually that that our system uh, our experiment in self-government is about to fail yeah. and it's going to fail because of our own shortcomings, not because of external enemies. Mm-hmm. It's going to fail because of our own uh, selfishness. Uh, you're listening to Uncommentary. This is Marty Durham. My guest today is Tracy McKenzie, and we're talking about how wicked the early Americans were. Uh, uh, that really is, I guess, what we're talking about <laughs> uh, under the guise of his book, We the Fallen People, and we're going to be right back after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, there's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. And there's not a lot more, but nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Um, But the reality is it doesn't take a lot and uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, If you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Uh, but in, in our own minds, we didn't stay, uh, wicked and potentially a byword in all the earth. Uh, we made some self-improvement took place apparently. And, uh, we became the righteous America or something along that line. Explain how that transition took place and how we began, begun, became to think of ourselves as, uh, not so bad after all. That's a big question. And actually, it's not one, Marty, just uh, to be honest, it's not one that I address really explicitly in in the book. Uh, I think, um, you know, the first couple of chapters really focus on the Constitutional Convention. Then I leap forward to the uh, election of 1824, which your uh, listeners, um, they should know that's maybe the most important election in all of American history. Uh, And I leap forward there and I just compare the two. I, I look at the way that politicians and other public figures are talking about human nature. Uh, And what I want readers to see more than anything else is the dramatic contrast. Uh, It's literally the understanding of human nature that the founders had turned upside down. Uh, And so you get that in a number of ways. What's causing that is hard to say. One of the things as a Christian that intrigues me is the question of whether uh, this is to some degree theologically driven. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that the revivals of the early uh, 1800s are beginning to unfold, having a major impact on uh, American life. Uh, and uh, the theology of the revivals tends to be much uh, more optimistic. Mm-hmm. To use the term, it's Arminian more than uh, the Reformed Calvinistic understanding. Uh, and maybe that's maybe that's part of what's driving this. Uh, it may be just as possible that as political uh, rhetoric changes, that religion conforms to that mm-hmm. public religion. I don't know, mm-hmm. uh, but but certainly uh, what you'll see from uh, journalists. 
from uh, poets and fiction writers, what you see from politicians everywhere, uh, is what I call uh, the democratic gospel, uh, which is not that we are lost, but that our Savior uh, is, has made possible a, a way of being reconciled to God, but rather that we're pretty good, uh, that, that we are individually good and that we are collectively wise, uh, which means that uh, the um, decision of the majority takes on a kind of intrinsic moral authority mm-hmm. that it would not have had in the worldview of the, of the framers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the framers would have said that in a free society, the majority must in the long run rule or you're not living in a free society. But they never would have said, and that's automatically always going to be just. Uh, what the, the Jacksonian era is beginning to say is if the majority believes in it, is it is intrinsically wow. just. Uh, so it's a, it is a dramatic change, which is one of the reasons I make some observations that, that things such as the removal of Native Americans was overwhelmingly popular at the time. Uh, and by that definition, you'd have to argue that it was uh, a just outcome. But of course, we, we, we wouldn't agree with that. And that hasn't changed in the succeeding 198 years or whatever it is, because uh, every presidential candidate that I know anything about always talks about how great America is and how great Americans are and what we can accomplish together and all those kinds of things. Um, there, there's hardly ever uh, a moment or a call for any kind of national reflection uh, of, of any moral quandary at all. Um, I mean, let's set aside for a moment the specifically Christian ones or specifically Jewish ones, just ones that are large. Uh, there, there's almost never set aside any, any time to uh, encounter what we've done and uh, think about how we could do better. It's just we're just great and we can even do we can be even better than we are and we're already pretty good. Um, so Tocqueville comes into this scene at some point and, um, everybody that's ever been in a church service on the 4th of July has heard a Tocqueville quote. Um, talk a little bit about who he, who he was and how he became so influential in our own story. Yeah. So I bring Tocqueville into the story because, uh, he is such an important voice for us to listen to. For your listeners that aren't familiar, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French aristocrat, uh, in his mid twenties, actually who comes to the United States in the year 1831. So that's right during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Uh, and he's very much intrigued by the, the concept of democracy mm-hmm. in the abstract. And he believes that democracy is more advanced in the United States than anywhere in the world. So his, his idea is, if I want to understand democracy, I want to observe it in the most democratic society on earth uh, and see what I can learn about it. But he's an outsider. Uh, he doesn't come to the study of democracy with our assumptions. He, he doesn't come to the study of democracy uh, with this idea of, of democratic uh, gospel or democratic faith that we're automatically good. In fact, he's, he's much more informed by the French Revolution. Uh, he had five family members who were executed uh, during the terror in the French Revolution. And his parents, this was before he was born, but his parents uh, spent close to a year in a dungeon and so he had no illusions that the majority is always temperate and well thought out in its, in its views. He actually comes to the state of democracy, uh, believing that it can promote great good, that can promote great injustice, uh, that democracy can promote fr- liberty and dignity of the human, uh, or it can promote oppression uh, and even barbarism, as he, as he puts it. Uh, so the question in Tocqueville's mind is, what kind of democracy is going to evolve? 
uh, and what will uh, be the variables that will lead to one or the other kind of, of outcome. So he asks hard questions that individuals born and raised in this country aren't just, it's not going to be on our radar in the way that it was for him. And so I argue that TOEFL is just sort of perennially relevant. Even uh, uh, the more than two centuries now or almost two centuries have passed. He has so much uh, to tell us. And I think the most important things he tells us uh, is that democracy is morally indeterminate, uh, that it can produce really good outcomes mm -hmm. or really unjust outcomes. So what do you see? Uh, what do you see ahead for us with 200 years of people blowing smoke up us, uh, telling us how great we are and um, unwilling to really deal with most of the, the dirt uh, and no longer believing what the framers believed, that the reason that our government is organized the way that it is is to protect us from ourselves, so to speak. Um, what do you see now and in, the, and in the next, say, 25 years? Yeah, boy, as a historian, I'm going to be skept uh, hesitant to predict the future. But, <laughs> but I certainly would. I do believe uh, that we are in a, in a perilous moment mm. uh, for um, uh, American democracy. Uh, if you pay attention to opinion polls, uh, they suggest some pretty troubling things. They tell us that more and more of us are deeply not only frustrated with government, but actually willing to say we're not so persuaded that democracy is the best alternative mm -hmm. available to us. So there's survey data now suggesting that anywhere from a fourth to a third of Americans would say, Maybe it would be better if we had a system characterized by a strong leader who wasn't held accountable by regular elections or by an elected legislature. Wow. Uh, and you know that should that should should scare us. I actually think that King for, King James is going to be asking for an apology. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> you know, I think for Christians, I, I mentioned that I have a burden for the testimony of the church. We're not going to be able necessarily to control the response of our neighbors, uh, but I think we can ourselves try to sort of re-embrace the idea that we're a fallen people mm -hmm. uh, and that one of the ways that we sort of protect our political system is constantly being aware of that, mm -hmm. uh, that the dangers that threaten us aren't only external, that they're also internal. But, but by internal, I don't mean those Americans over there. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, within our own hearts, uh, it sort of starts, uh, starts there. Um, you know, I thought before uh, COVID uh, that some sort of national emergency might be the thing that would uh, reduce our polarization and unify Americans. Wow. I think we have to say that that didn't yeah, happen didn't, at all. Did it just happen. sort of exacerbated yeah. uh, the tensions that were already there. So I am, uh, I am concerned. What, whatever God has in store for our country, uh, I just uh, I long uh, for some later generation to believe. Uh, to look back and say, but but those Christ followers, uh, they were uh, faithful uh, and they testified to truth mm -hmm. and they continued to try to love mm -hmm. uh, even uh, in difficult times. So let me ask you, um, and, and if you want to punt on this, that's fine because it's I don't know that you cover it in the book, but um, kind of a, it seems to me that there is amongst this split or this divide uh, that, that there's almost a rise of a theocratic kind of uh, move to not only to jettison democracy as we know it, but and not to look to the strong leader necessarily, 
but actually to move back toward an Old Testament uh, institution of the law in some way um, that isn't Christ, an, a Christian-influenced country, but is some type of actual Christian country. And I don't really know how, mm-hmm. how that would look. I joke all the time. I'm like, the only person that wants America to be a Christian nation is somebody who's never attended a church business meeting. Um, <laughs> but do you do you sense that? Do you see that anywhere? I mean, I think that I do, but yeah. I'm I'm could be biased. Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't I don't know that I'm aware of large segments of the American population today that literally would want to return to theocracy. But I do think there is a large segment that use the terminology, the language of Christian country or Christian nation. Uh, the, the argument <clears throat> that this was a Christian nation and that it has been taken away from us is a powerful argument. Uh, I, I think when you can identify a, a particular group and say you're both righteous and victimized, it's a powerful argument. Uh, and so the let's take back America becomes a really strong rhetorical kind of argument. Uh, but I think those scholars who are studying this phenomenon of Christian nationalism would say that individuals who are drawn uh, drawn to it may hold beliefs that are really remote if they're connected at all to what has been historically understood as Christian orthodoxy, uh, that Christian nationalism is much about my identity uh, being threatened uh, as it uh, is anything. If I could just let Tocqueville have the uh, a word on, on this, you know, uh, Tocqueville growing up in France had seen how individuals who were committed to political liberty attacked the church. Because uh, in France, before the French Revolution, uh, the monarchy and the Catholic church had been absolutely unified. And so sort of logically, they thought, if we really believe in freedom, we have to attack uh, both the monarchy, but also the church. And Tocqueville saw that as just an enormous mistake. He actually argued that that despotism can live without faith, but liberty cannot, uh, that people have to believe in some sort of um, uh, divine authority uh, to uh, ultimately succeed in self, self-government. And so his warning to Americans at the time was that when you begin to associate your position too closely to a political movement, uh, that is to say, when you begin to uh, define Christianity in terms of its political allegiances, uh, you, you threaten really to alienate uh, your, your society from your faith. Uh, the way he put it in France, he said that the church was a living thing, but it had lashed itself to a cadaver, which he, by which he meant the monarchy. And I think that's a powerful uh, word picture. And I just I worry that we might lash the, the living eternal church uh, to a, a mortal, very fallen institution. Wow. Tracy McKenzie, the book is We the Fallen People. I'm going to hold this thing up and uh, maybe I can get it in front of the camera. I don't know how to do this very well. We the Fallen People, the Founders, and the Future of American Democracy. This is a really good book, y'all, and uh, you you can pick it up somewhere, IVP. Uh, This is fantastic. Now, are you on social media at all, or is that like something you don't do so you can write books? I don't do it a whole lot. I, I have a uh, website where I post, uh, you know, links to talks that I give okay. and things like that. You won't find me on Twitter very much, I'm afraid. Okay. What's, so. what's the website? What's the URL? It's roberttracymckenzie.com. Okay. It's just my full name.com. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much for hanging out today. My pleasure, Marty. Thank you for having me. 
As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at UncommentaryPod. Please rate and review, and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solidale Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast.